Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm joined today by Ryan Carfley, who's my recruiting spirit animal. Awesome. Pleasure to be here. And amazing how we came in contact with each other for the first time. I actually, the first time I met you, turned around to my internal team and asked how someone so sharp could be a stone's throw away from my front door. And I don't know them. We're supposed to be in recruiting here and you and I had never met. It is kind of funny. And I think, and by the way, I drove by your building, you know, hundreds of times. Here's the funny thing. My son knew you or of you before I did. Awesome. I think. So, yeah. I don't know though. It depends. <laughs> you know, he's in the corporate real estate space in Raleigh and he's like, Oh yeah, I know who Ryan Carp is. He's an awesome dad. He's he's like the dude. So I'm in his office right now. So he knows I'm actually doing this episode right down. Very Ryan and cool. I talked before. My internet is down, my phone is down, nothing. I have nothing at my house. So we're doing this the old fashioned way. Oh, we might have actually could have done it over the phone, like over like an analog phone line, maybe on super old school. <laughs> like taking notes or recording it on a tape deck somewhere. Right. So Ryan, when we did first meet. It was interesting when we started learning a little more about each other's backgrounds, your story about how you kind of started the company and took over the company. There's a lot there. I want to drill into that as well. But let's step back a little bit further. You played D1 football at UNC, went to grad school there. When you think about your time as a D1 athlete, how much of that conveys to who you are today in the working world? Yeah, I think all of it. When you think about the journey you go on as a collegiate athlete, you're managing you know, 40 plus hour work week, you're being measured in arguably, I think some of the most competitive environments you can be in. I mean, you're in a room full of your peers on tape daily Mm -hmm. competing for what is a very finite amount of playing time. And and it's in a condensed window. You've got a five, a five-year window. I was really fortunate. I landed at the university of North Carolina and I'm in the rare situation where the guy that I backed up, there was no chance I could take his job. Jeff Saturday went on to be a Hall of Famer Mm -hmm. uh, in North Carolina and then had the storied NFL career that he had. So I really had one of those kind of uh, waiting. You know, I was was the center in waiting and I had a lot of work to do from when I got there, from where I started to when I actually got on the field. And so you learn the value of ongoing work towards a larger goal without that instant gratification. Mm -hmm. And I think when I think about the impact it's had on me, you get there and you think you're just going to play And all of a sudden you get level set almost immediately and you've got to kind of put yourself back together and have the courage, I think, to keep going. That was a a trait that I think has has followed me throughout the 20 years that I've had here at Personify for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people forget that in any athletic team in D1, there are dozens of kids who are grinding behind the starters trying to get in the field and it can take years and sometimes they never see the field. They play four years of college sport and never actually see the field in a live game. Big part of the team. And, you know, Jeff, like you said, Jeff Saturday weren't probably one of the greatest linemen of all time. So you got your shot your junior and senior year and got on the field and and the rest is history. Yeah, I think you gain a a much better appreciation. I vividly remember like my senior year kind of making sure I took it all in. I didn't think I was going to be fortunate enough to go on and play. And so you really valued every second you were out there. Now I'm paying for it now. My body's sore. I wouldn't come off the field because I knew I did. There were two guys behind me that probably were better than I was, but just didn't have the ability at the time to line everybody up and get them pointed in the right direction. So I knew what my strengths were. 
and yeah. also knew like that moment if you come off the field, you may never never see that opportunity again. So it, it is really a, an incredible learning experience. And I think one that made me value, hey, I never want to look back with regret. And I also am not going to put any limitations on myself because there were plenty of people for a, when I got down to the University of North Carolina that said this wasn't going to work. He's probably not good enough to play here. Heard that quite a bit. And I'm not sure I knew I was when I got there. But I think staying at it and you incrementally mature and you, you get more experience, all of a sudden you, you, you go from an 18-year-old kid to a 22-year-old adult, young adult, you begin to see the game slow down. And so you just get a lot more perspective, I think, having that collegiate experience than I would have had if I didn't have it, for sure. Yeah, my son ended up transferring to NC State to play soccer, and he won the starting job in the spring, the fall of his sophomore year, broke his ankle before the first game. German national team keeper, they had, they had just signed, comes in, all ACC freshman of the year. Locked my, we looked at each other like, you may never see the field again. This kid's that good. So Vinny was the first kid to hand him a water bottle, train with him, became good friends. This kid's junior year, Vinny's senior year, very first game, kid goes out, turns, plant, blows his whole knee out. Every MCL, ACL, PCL. Coach walks up to Vinny and goes, you worked hard on anybody I know, you've earned this. And he had an incredible senior year, started every game, played tremendous, just had a great year. And, you know, you're right. You just don't know when those moments are going to be there or not be there. And you know, it's interesting, as you mentioned that, you learn how to compete. Yeah. So we talk about this a lot at Personify. Like in between the lines, make no mistake about it. Even if you play on our team here, I am competing with you. And I, I think it's, it's, you know, competition is basically the, it, it drives complacency out of a room, right? Mm-hmm. But you got to know how to do it. And I think when I think about my experience, particularly with Jeff, like you just described my senior year, we're playing at TCU and he fakes an ankle injury to get me on the field. He just said, Hey, this kid needs to play. He's going to play next year. We've got to give him an opportunity. So as I'm trotting by him, he literally winks at me as I'm heading out there. That's how you compete. You know, I'd yeah. waited, I'd played behind him for two years. He recognized that, that the game was in good shape in terms of us being able to win. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you, they're going to give you a shot. Somebody's going to give you a shot. And it's going to be me. And I think you just learn how, but make no mistake about it. Every day that I went out there, I wanted to try to take his job. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. And you're right. You don't know when that moment's going to come. And in fact, I was actually beaten out as a junior and the guy in front of me blew his knee out. And then I never came off the field. So that never left me. And, and he was definitely a better player. But you just never know when that intersection of the historical work that you've done and great timing are going to be. And that's certainly the case in our business for sure. Yeah. And I think if you can keep your nose to the grindstone, even when you're not on the field, that's the that's the recognition and I think the sign of a true champion. You said something else earlier in the show that I thought was interesting. You know, you guys watch a tremendous amount of film. And like you said, you're sitting there with your peers. All your mistakes are there for everyone to see. Rewind, see again, oh, yeah. rewind, see again. And think about it, Pete, with, as an offensive lineman, you're going to watch the same play five times. Yeah. So if they aren't evaluating your play, you are waiting till your turn as they break that tape down, watching that over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, fast forward, you get out of school. Walk us through kind of how Personify came to be. This is a really interesting story. And I think it goes, when we first met, there's a couple of lessons you had early in this process that defined what kind of leader you were going to be, and what kind of company you were going to build. So kind of give us the, the version of how this all came to be. In between those two points, from when I graduated to when I landed here at Personify, I was really fortunate. I was on initially the staff at Rutgers with Terry Shea, which unfortunately transitioned over to Greg Schiano, And I was one of the few that, that they kept. And so I had an opportunity to, right then and there to watch someone who was at arguably the worst program in America, set a vision and be relentless in his pursuit of it and didn't allow the incremental naysayers or the setbacks 
to dissuade him from what he was doing. In my mind, from working with Greg, it was done the day it started. He was going to take that program where it went the day he got that job. And so I had the opportunity there to really witness what it feels like to be in a situation that, that seems like the opportunity is either limited or almost hopeless and watch this infusion of vision and pursuit of that vision at, at really with no one going to be able to tell him that it wasn't going to happen. So I did that for two years. But while I was doing that, my parents bought a tiny recruiting firm. If you're familiar with the area above Jimmy V's Steakhouse in Cary mm-hmm. called Sales Consultants of Raleigh. And I'm coaching football at the time. And I just get a call from my dad who said, hey, listen, we've, we've bought this business. We closed on it two days before 9-11 would you be open to coming down here and helping us? And this is now, you know, buttoned right up against, you know, the, we're in the season, we're in September. So I said, listen, I, I am willing to help. The timing is not that great. So they closed on this business right before 9-11, leveraged their entire life savings to do it. My dad was going to get off the road. And ultimately the planes hit the towers. They're positioned in telecom in 2001. The bubble bursts, the country goes to war. And I came down to help them on what I thought was going to be a really short-term interim basis. Six months after that point, I get a call from my, from my mom. She said, Hey, can you come down and see us? They lived at Pinehurst at the time. And I looked at the guy sitting next to this guy, Nick Pokolo, who's in his 20th year with me now. And I said, Hey man, I think I'm getting grounded or something. I'm you know, 24 years old. My parents just told me to like, come home. So I get in the car, I, I get down there and walk into my living room. My dad, super stoic, just kind of sitting in a seat. And he says, I'm sick. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I've, I've, got, I've been diagnosed with a really rare form of cancer. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to go to a, a facility to be treated. And I still have this book, Pete. It's great. He, he gives me this leather bound, like almost like a diary. And on the, on the inside of it is when you pay the rent, when the payroll is due. And I'm, you know, I'm only seven or eight months into this business. And so you know, with a really heavy heart and quite a bit of fear, turned around and drove back in the next day and huddled our group of maybe five at the time together and said, Hey, you know, this is what we're dealing with. And I just vividly remember being the least qualified. I had no management experience, no business experience and limited recruiting experience. I was the least qualified guy in the room. But the one thing I knew how to do, I felt like I knew how to lead people. And so I'd been really fortunate to have been the product of really great leaders. And I, I knew how to follow because I played behind Jeff Saturday and I'd been led by other great coaches in my career. So just kind of jumped in with that mindset of, We're going to basically do whatever it takes to get from point A to point B. What I didn't know at the time is the sense of, hey, this story doesn't end like this was being crafted as my dad was getting sicker. There were people in the building with me who were saying things like, you know, it doesn't have to go out like, like we don't have, this doesn't have to end here. And unfortunately, 18 months after his diagnosis, we lost my dad. So at 26, I'm the president and CEO of a business that's about $2 million in debt. And we've got, seven employees. (laughs) It was certainly a baptism by fire. But, you know, in retrospect, the group that I had around me, and because of what I'd been through for a couple of years at Rutgers, I just didn't think there was a chance. I never stopped long enough to think that it wouldn't work. And because of the arrangement my family had with the previous owner and what it would mean to my mom, if we lost the business, there was no plan B. I never had the ability to go, you know, I've since gone on and went on and got an MBA. And I've said, if I had gone through the program, I would have just shut the thing down. And I'm glad that I hadn't gone through that program then because what I got from that experience of you have to make this work was far, far more valuable than the price I paid making it happen. That foundation was forged 
I think in my time as a collegiate athlete and really working for a guy that went on to be the national coach of the year and Greg Schiano, for sure. You know, you said a couple of things there that if anyone listening as a leader or an entrepreneur, right? And since you're an entrepreneur there, you've got this small startup of a business. You said you were, you felt like you were a good leader, but you also quietly mentioned you were a good follower. And sure. you described the other five people in the room and where you sat from a knowledge experience perspective. So you read the room, you kind of knew your place. And at the time, they just needed a leader, but they also needed someone who could follow them and say, teach me the recruiting business and I'll figure the rest out. So, and by the way, where Personify is today is very different yeah. than where you were in that room. So walk us through those that first year, right? You got, by the way, $2 million in debt on a seven-person company is astonishing. Well, we also know we, we, everyone got paid and we never filed. So we, we made it out. So Unbelievable. Yeah. What were the first couple of things you did to shore up the business to give you the confidence? Like you said, it never stopped. It was always for momentum. But what were the big key moves you made? Well, I think the first thing is, particularly when you're new in any business, is I was an operator. I had the ability to directly affect the outcome with a very high margin percentage, right? So if you're all of a sudden, I'm an owner, in quotes, of this, of this business, in quotes, but we're commanding placement fees that allow me to chip away significantly at what we're doing. So what started off as, and you know, the list was relatively distinguished that we had debts to. And in one, one part of that, Pete, that I didn't mention was my mom and I went out and met with a bankruptcy attorney. And they said, you're not bankrupt, believe it or not. You're, you're just, you're broke and you've got a few months and it can go either way. Sure. And I was really grateful for that experience because truly that thought like, okay, sometimes you just need one person to tell you it's not as dark as it may be. Mm-hmm. But as we get going as an operator, I have the ability to directly affect how much we're reinvesting in the business or what we're using to pay down our debt. Mm-hmm. And so we just started accelerating you know, at my own desk and then reinvesting that money back into the business. And then as we made it out of that, we didn't stop. So, so the point of entry for the market segment that I'm in in RPO is really high. I mean, it's a very high cost of entry to come in and do enterprise recruiting at the level that we do. But I had already been preconditioned for all of that. I had gone years without making any money. My credit score had gone to 400 and worked its way back up. I'd done all those things. Mm-hmm. So what probably would feel a lot like, you know, I was working for free. I just felt like we were consistently reinvesting in, in what we were doing. And then as it started to take off and we found ourselves in, in the RPO sector, you got into a whole new world of recurring revenue. And then the business completely changed. But mm-hmm. in between those two points, I think the most significant advantage I had was as I was learning it on the fly, I understood recruiting. And so it just became like, what are you willing to do to keep this going? And if you're willing to reinvest what you're doing back into the business, you can cover significant ground. I think I see a lot of times people that are entrepreneurs, particularly starting businesses, they haven't adjusted their lives to suit what's going to actually need to happen to be able to stand a business up. My dad went through that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, he had had you know, a relatively high overhead and now all of a sudden, what would typically be reinvested in the business has got to go out and yeah. it becomes rate limiting. Yeah. And so we had you hit the bottom. We lost there. My mom lost homes. We lost everything in that process. There was nothing left to lose. And then it became my lifestyle was very basic. And then it became, wow, this is a bit of an advantage. We're young. We're a relatively young company. And we have the ability to take risks that most companies wouldn't take because of you know how we've set the rest of our lives up with. So 
I think the beginning was just being an operator and being able to eventually, you know, set, set some form of a tempo. But I will say that I was never the, I've still never been the best recruiter that's ever been in this building. And I never will be in a nutshell. That's sort of it. A lot of people don't acknowledge that side. I think people portray the go broke, lose your credit score, sell your house, lose your house, whatever it is, phase of entrepreneurship. And I've been through all of those. I will hundred, you know, hundred percent sold my house. All my college funds, all my IRAs, all my investments, all my credit card, all in 100%. No income for a few years. Yep. And you know, it's funny when you watch your W-2s and you see your social security statement come in, it goes from here to zero, pretty challenging. And you have, to make, you have to make a lot of adjustments. So, But it also it's also why people who've been down this journey and have found any measure of success, it tastes all the more sweet. And I think you learn my kids were older during this process, learned the difference between a need and a want. Very powerful, right? You know, Pete, you made me think of something. Through the course of that process, when my dad was still here, we had to call, you know, you start calling friends and family, right? So you're, you're, you're running out. You, no bank is going to lend you any money. So yep. you start calling friends and family. And one of those calls was to my best friend's father-in-law. And he picked the phone up and we said, you know, he said, Hey, how's it going? I'm imagine being in the room with your son and in this place that we are in when we make this call. And we said, hey, How's it going? And he said, Oh, great. I'm just I'm setting my skis down and getting ready to pull the golf clubs up. How how are you guys doing? And I remember thinking, like, this guy was a serial entrepreneur, had done really well. And we talked him through what we were dealing with. And he said something, Pete, that never left me. You know, because I had said something while we were talking, because I'd known him through my best friend. And I said, Hey, you know. <laughs> I just keep saying there's no way this could get any worse and it keeps getting worse. Mm-hmm. And he like laughed, not at us, but he just, he said, Hey guys, I'll tell you something. Number one, it can always get worse. So never forget that. And number two, you're going to hit a point with which you bottom out. And when you press back up against that point, that is the courage that's going to take you into every room you go back into. And right. so don't mistake the period of time you're in for anything else then it really sharpening the iron that's going to be what carries you forward. And he could not have been more right. It did get worse. But my perception of the difference between tough, bad, I guess, bad, tough, and tragic, I had a window into this now. And I also fully understood what I really needed to survive off of. And then once you adjust that number, let's go compete now. Because now I promise you, the risk I'm willing to take on a potential project or with my own staff is exponentially higher for me because I've been through that point and it doesn't scare me anymore. And subsequently, you and I have done this a long time, 01, 08, 2020, what we're heading into now, I look at it completely different given where I've been. And so that piece of advice really stuck with me for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think people who have had a crucible definitely recognize that economic challenges, downturns, or whatever are opportunities. Couldn't agree with you more. I truly believe that market movement is really the only real opportunity. Industry movement, however you want to phrase it, is the only real opportunity that exists. Straight line growth, like what we've been through for my business, particularly in outsourcing and the way we deliver our services, our business has been on the same trajectory probably as most, but the ability to go 10x doesn't exist when everything is a steady climb. Yeah. You've got, And so we don't look forward to it, but the level of anxiety I would have had I not been a product of that bottom falling straight out would be exponential. Looking back at what we've been able to do, I don't think I would have taken those risks had I not gone through that that stuff in the beginning. Uh, no, no question about it. And, and I still know, by the way, I, I, I laugh about it. I've got friends that 
the way I described their career, got out of college, got that great corporate job, worked their way all the way up the ladder to extreme success financially, career-wise, and they hit singles and doubles. They just hit for average, just very safe, invested properly. And by the way, I look at them, I go, good for you. That's fucking awesome. For me, the risk was something I was, I just have a high risk profile, good or bad, probably more bad than good. If you ask my wife, like, come on, honey. I know you're very confident, but geez. So you get the business up, you turn the corner, you you know, you got to deal with the passing of your father, which at a young age, I just, you know, like I said, my 25 year old son sitting around the corner for me right now. So, you know, I hope to think he would, he would feel the same way. I can't imagine that. When you look at what you learn from a business perspective that dovetailed after your college football career, how does all of that translate into your family life? What is that like? How do you share that with others? How do you let it influence your behavior? And how do you, what are things you have to curb back every once in a while? So I think there's a few things. I think when people evaluate the concept of work-life balance or the way that leads across, certainly the older I get, the more disciplined I get at setting in the ba- the boundaries that you've got to have to be able to perform. It's not, it, I am a much better father, coworker, co-parent. Many people don't know this. I'm divorced. My wife and I work together. So we work in inside this building and went through the most innocuous divorce you could imagine. Literally not anything more than just not necessarily the right fit, but 100% committed to our business and our child and making sure that, that the go forward was emblematic of all the work that had gone into it. Okay. So from that perspective, though, I will say what you don't, what I didn't truly understand was the amount of capacity that business can occupy inside your head. So I think sure. as I got older, particularly, listen, the, when my daughter arrives, when my nine-year-old gets here, she is the kryptonite that sends me out of this building at five o'clock on the nose. It was very difficult to get me out of here. I was a hundred percent invested and into it. But when she showed up, it became a whole different ball game. So I, I say all of this with the fact that like knowing what I know now, the way to kind of properly manage that bleed over is setting up those boundaries and yeah. really determining is this urgent? And 99% of it is not. And I wish I'd known that. I think it would have had a significant impact on my marriage and my relationships with others and things like that. But sometimes you just have to learn things by going through them. And so through that though, you know, I do my very best to set this here at 5 p.m. When I walk out, that's not totally realistic, but being really, really intentional about how and where I spend my time. I do think as we're all entrepreneurs, it isn't a on-off switch. I mean, I, I rode the other day, Pete, I, I took an Uber from, I had to drop my car off at the car dealership and I took an Uber with a guy who had just set down his pressure washing business. And I said, how are you doing? He's like, I cannot tell you how happy I am. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I never knew how much time I was spending in my own head on a lot of this stuff, payroll, mm-hmm. turnover, new customers, new products, And so I think I have, over the course of the last really three years, really refined my schedule. And it's amazing when you go through what what we went through, you have to, because I'm a single parent half the time. So there there is legitimately nothing keeping me from getting back into my house at night. And so for me, I think understanding those boundaries and setting them up in a way where everything isn't urgent and prioritizing what is. And that, that's been a big thing, but it's tough. We had, uh, we had Mark Schlereth came in and talked to our company. And he talked a lot about like, I would love to tell you I have this balance totally figured out, but it is a work in progress for me. Yeah. And it was the same. This has been the same for me too. When you meet fellow entrepreneurs that have had some measure of success, you can see it in their eyes. 
right? It's, yeah. hard, it's hard to turn off. And you don't get to be successful without some sacrifices, good or bad. And, you know, there's a, we're going to take the hill, right? And there's going to be some dead bodies. We're taking the hill. Yeah. And when you get to the top of the hill, all of a sudden you get a lot of perspective. You see things you hadn't seen before when you're at the bottom of the hill. And you always hear the wise words of people like yourself, your parents, your father, whatever saying, Hey, dial it back a little bit. This isn't everything. And when you're in it, it's hard not to see that it's everything. It does preoccupy and entrepreneurs brains are spinning all the time. And there are some people that when they get to the phase your Uber driver did, where it's now the, pay, the payroll and taxes and turnover, that drains them. And they realize, I'm probably not this person. I want to go work for another company. And they handle all that stuff. I just want to click the paycheck into my life. Yep. I think there's no question that as you set out, we and we've had a very steady growth trajectory. We've never taken outside money. We're a bootstrap business, no board, no debt. And so our growth looks like that. It's just very steady and incremental because I do think there's a point in time where this can get way far away from you and you wake yeah. up and, it, and it, it has happened to me multiple times in our growth story where you look around and go, Hey, am I the right one for this at this exact moment? And, and it's either you got to determine, is it time to recalibrate what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? Or yeah. it was one of the drivers to get, that got me back into school or is it, Hey, this is just the size of this business now. And you've got to make some tough decisions if you really are the right person. Fortunately, so far, I still am. But I think at a bunch of different checkpoints, the parts, if you go back to that room when there was eight of us and you think about right now, what I try to do at this point is I try to hold sacred as much of that room that day as I can. Yeah. As you get bigger, it's hard to do. Yeah. When you cross that, it's, it's amazing. 25 people and then 50 people. 50 people is a really weird thing in a small company. That's when big stuff starts to happen. Systems need to be put in place. Structure starts to happen. You don't know everybody the way you used to know everybody else, right? And yep. you see somebody that walks in the building you've never met him before. They're one of your employees, right? That just that it's weird. And, and how to maintain that culture when you look at the next phase of personifying kind of where the recruiting space itself is headed. Again, I, I have a, a side recruiting business too, and I think many parts of the of the industry are broken and need to be changed and disrupted. You know, contract structures, there's technology out there that has changed the way people should be doing things and they're not changing the way they should be doing things yet. So where do you see your specific niche of the recruiting space going in the industry in general? There's a few things. You know, one of the first things they teach you when you get down in Keenan Flagler is they say, a lot of you think you're going to go off and start Facebook and hopefully one, some of you may, Mm -hmm. but probably the magic lies in taking something really simple and mastering it. So when I think about our journey and particularly talent acquisition, we fundamentally agree with you, it's broken. So today, as you sit down and you evaluate the way that talent acquisition is developed at an organization, there are some really fatal flaws in it. So for starters, we believe if you are in a buy versus build dilemma, and you decided that you're not going to build the team internally, we believe the services should be delivered 100% on demand. I should assume all the risk is the provider. I'm the expert. You should if otherwise build it yourself. And I think when you combine that with talent access that they can get from a third-party search agency, mm-hmm. you now are cooking with kerosene. Sounds very simple, not easy to execute because now the ebbs and flows of Fortune 500s and their growth now fall on our shoulders to be able to be staffed at a level that allows us to deliver those services. So at its basis point, before we even like broach the sub- subject of tech and the level of disruption that's there, I think at its basis point to take a fixed 
solution, which would be an internal group of individuals that you pay on a month-to-month basis that are either overstaffed and you've got all this excess capacity with, or totally, which is less likely, or right now, understaffed and voice of customer suffers and third-party agency spend is exponential. I don't believe it's set up to work long-term. Right. And so for us, we're and one of our, our first, I think, big tests of this theory that on-demand delivery with unmatched talent access, we went through the entire pandemic. Unemployment goes to from 3% to 14%, back down to 3% again. And that movement from 3% to 14% in the world of RPO, this was unheard of, I'm told, didn't lose a single customer because our customer, by the time our contract came in front of someone, they looked at it and said, nope, this can go to zero. Let's let them sort it out. And thank God it did. Because as the world responded, our entire client roster went exponential in their needs. And we were sitting in a really interesting place. So I think from that perspective, the level of disruption is basic, but it's just changing your mindset on how we solve this problem. And our pricing is set up in a way where the more volume you give us, your pricing drops. The way that most of us like to consume our products. From a tech perspective, we're talking about a completely different animal now. You've got emerging technologies that are inside of AI that, that are starting to, to now disrupt levels of the sourcing process. They certainly are not there yet where you can actually talk to a passive candidate who's not looking and have a bot do that. But nope. I'll tell you what you can do, the incremental movement when I apply to a role, the four or five questions that are binary, those can be asked through a bot. And that can start to limit down the sourcing and screening aspect of our work. Another thing that I think is really disruptive is what we're seeing in the engagement space now. You have organizations that are pulse surveying companies every two weeks to a month or at least every quarter in most instances and can now begin to draw a line between engagement, retention, and performance mm-hmm. and a profile on the front end. So now we're not in this break, fix, rip the band aid off mentality of we just lost someone. Let's repeat all the things that don't work, bring them back into this universe, and in six months or a year, be in the exact same place. There is a ton of data and tools out there at our respective fingertips, but aggregating and organizing that into one place for one integrated model, hard to do. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of right now is is that movement from to an integrated talent solution is expensive, Mm -hmm. it's time-consuming. And it requires you to be intentional in the way that you set up your processes and everything from your talent acquisition, to talent management, have all got to start talking. And the most evolved companies out there are doing it. It's having a big impact for sure. Yeah, I think there's, well, first of all, you're, you guys are dealing with challenges. Most agencies are not because of your scale and volume. Right? You're just dealing with bigger numbers, bigger, bigger groups of candidates. You got to move bigger needles. And so tech does play a role. But like you said, at some point, people have to talk to that to people. There's no question. And, and that's the, so it's still a technology health, but it's still an art, right? It's still a science. You got to handle that process. You mentioned, you know, talent acquisition and talent management, right? So getting people in, training them, growing them, retaining them. We're starting to see so much more involvement from marketing now on the talent side, right? Building destination employers, company brand, employee brand, personal brands floating out now, you know, and, and impacting company brands. So it's a pretty tangled web we weave right now. From a you had an entire group dedicated to digital media. If you would have told me that 20 years ago, I would have told you there's there's just no possible way. We've got an, from the ground up, develop digital strategies that are directly related to increasing the applicant pool and driving traffic to, to what you do. And, and, and 
never at any moment in time five years ago was that even on my radar. Well, no, I mean, uh, who would have imagined being a recruiter is like being a real estate agent the last couple of years. Hopefully, all those real estate agents put a lot of money away because it's hard to sustain that level of activity, right? When when things flip the other direction and talent becomes plentiful and roles become less, that's where you know people like you guys that position your contracts the right way become more attractive. I think there's absolutely no doubt that when you think about what's propping us up right now, you've got you've got a high concentration of open jobs, 11.2, 11.3 million. You've got 4.3 million, 43% of it turning over mm-hmm. every month. And then in addition to that, the level, level of labor depletion across all segments is like nothing we've ever seen. We're fortunate in that we are very heavily positioned in healthcare, biotech, life sciences, particularly in like the RN recruitment that we do. Mm-hmm. It's been deplete. It will be deplete through whatever downturn we may or may not encounter. Yep. But I think that, that, that ultimately you've got to really sharpen your skills as these markets tighten. Because it's going to be, it is going to be a different recruiting landscape. There's no question about it. Yeah, it really is. Ryan, one last thing: college footballs are on the corner. How's UNC going to be this year? You know, I, I tell you what, it's it's going to be an interesting year. They've recruited really, really well. I was fortunate to have played for for Coach Brown. He gives you a lot, and he expects a lot. You can just see that in in the recruiting classes that have now come through. I think they've got some questions to answer at quarterback, which always make it an interesting um, yep. year. You just never know; it could go either way. Yeah. I was fortunate in 97 to play with a guy named Chris Keldorf who nobody knew who he was. By the end of the season, he was the ACC Offensive Player of the Year. You just yeah. don't know how that plays out. But I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with as the year goes on. And as that youth grows up in the program, I, I think they're going to be good. But, you know, we're all going to find out. That's why they kick the ball off in August, September timeframe, right? You know, as we're ending this up, Ryan, I, I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be a second chapter here because I want to. there's so much more I want to drill into, particularly your growth plans, how you see the industry changing, because there's more there, right? You just kind of touched on it. I appreciate it. It's when, especially some of the comments you made early on, just great for leaders and entrepreneurs to reflect back on, get through those tough times. It's been a pleasure, my friend. Oh, I appreciate it. Honored to be here. And anytime I can ever help you, maybe we'll go for a walk. We live a mile away. We can tee it up that way. We got to do it, man. We got to, especially when it gets to be a little cooler out in the fall, we can talk about fall. For sure. For sure. Ryan, great having the program, my friend. Thanks, Pete. Great talking to you. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.